Good morning. So before we uh, jump in, I want to ask a favor of you. Last fall, um, pastors and directors went away for two days for uh, prayer and planning. We asked you to pray for us. That was one of the most, if not the most fruitful uh, prayer and planning retreat we've had since I've been here. I want to thank you for that. And we're doing that again this week on Tuesday and Wednesday. So if you would uh, do us the favor of praying for us while we're away, while we try to seek to hear from the Holy Spirit, to hear and learn from one another, and then to uh, discern some more about what it means to move forward here at ECC, we'd really appreciate that. So in the other three Gospels, in the Gospel of John this morning, but the other three Gospels, we read the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days, and um, he's very hungry, as you can imagine. And that is when Satan appears to him and offers him a few temptations, a few shortcuts. In the first of the three temptations, Satan tells Jesus to take the stones that are before him there and to turn them into bread. He's hungry. This seems like a reasonable request. Mark 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus most needed more than bread in his time of temptation, what we need is every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that is what the crowds in John chapter 6 needed too, but they struggled to get to that place. As was the case with Jesus and every single follower of Jesus down through the centuries, there are many things that can tempt us away from what God has for us. Any one of us who has sought to follow Jesus with any intentionality uh, knows this. There's a, there's a cost to discipleship. There are commandments to be obeyed. There are sacrifices to be made. And when we fail to do so, when we give in to the temptation, we end up settling for something far less than what we could have had, than what God had for us. Sometimes we settle for something that is evil. Sometimes we simply settle for something that is less than the best. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes we simply make unwise choices. We hunger for more bread. We hunger for bread more than we do anything else. We hunger more for bread or something else that might be distracting to us than we do for every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I want to invite you, as we walk through this passage, we're going to deal with a lot this morning, um, to seek to listen to the Spirit. Is there some area in your own life where you have settled for less than God's best? Is there some choice you have made, some temptation you have given into that is less than the best that God has for you? Let me pray once more. God, we thank you for Jesus, who is the bread of life. I pray now, God, that you would help us to be attuned to your spirit as we engage your word. I pray that you speak through me and that you speak in spite of me. Lord, to say to our hearts whatever we need to hear. We offer ourselves up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Repeatedly in the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented to us as someone referred to as the prophet like Moses. The prophet like Moses. It's one of the questions that the the priests and the Levites asked of John the Baptist back in chapter 1 if he was the prophet like Moses. And we see references to this prophet in connection with Jesus pop up uh, at several places in John chapter 6. The phrase, a prophet like Moses, comes from Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses himself speaks of a day in the future. And there he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. 
When Israel was in the wilderness and they were thirsty, Moses struck a rock and the water flowed from the rock. And John 4, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman by the well of a different kind of water, of living water. He offers her living water, and that's, that's even better than the water that flowed from the rock through Moses. When Israel was in the wilderness, they were hungry, and God provided manna under Moses' leadership. In John 6, Jesus takes five small loaves of bread and two fish and multiplies them to feed more than 5,000 people when you count women and children who were not counted. When manna fell in the wilderness, it was supposed to be enough for one day at a time. But in John 6, when they pick up the pieces, there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers. It's an abundance of bread, even more so than the manna in the wilderness. During the Exodus, when the Israelites were trying to outrun Pharaoh's army, Moses lifted his staff and the, and the waters divided so that the people of Israel could walk through on dry ground to get away from Pharaoh. In John 6, Jesus doesn't part the water. He does one better. He just walks on the top of it. Likewise, in the prologue to his gospel, John writes this in John 1, verses 14 and 16. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. Another way to translate that last sentence is, out of his fullness we have all received grace stacked on top of grace. So Jesus is the prophet like Moses, only Jesus is the prophet like Moses on steroids. He does what Moses did, but he does it better. Grace stacked on top of grace. And the word he gives us about God is more powerful and more gracious than the word of the law handed down through Moses. Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Another part of the backstory here is that the crowds are following Jesus because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And after the miracle is over, the disciples got in the boat, they went across to the other side, Jesus caught up with them later, walking on the water, and the crowd begins to wonder where Jesus is, and they decide he must have gone somewhere else, though they didn't see him get into the boat, so they hop in boats and they go to the other side. And when they land on the other side, they find Jesus, and when they, they ask him a strange question, when did you get here? And Jesus, as often uh, is the case, ignores their question and goes straight to the heart of the matter. John 6, 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He, the Son of Man, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. These crowds are interested in more signs and wonders. They want more bread. But Jesus is interested in something more nourishing and more demanding at the same time. They have spent all their energy trying to find what Jesus calls food that spoils. What they need to do, Jesus says, is spend at least that much energy on seeking the eternal life that God has for them. And when John uses the term eternal life in his gospel, he means the same thing that the other gospels mean when they say the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. At other places, Jesus will refer to it as the abundant life or as the full life. The crowds, hungry for another miracle of provision, they pick up the word that Jesus has just used, and that word is work or works, and then they ask about it. Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works 
God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They bring in Moses once again. Moses gave us a sign. He gave our ancestors bread, manna from heaven. What will you do, Jesus? Can you top that? Are you the prophet like Moses? See, only a few verses back, verse 15, they wanted to take him and make him king. They seem to think that he may indeed be the prophet like Moses, the Messiah, and they have expectations. They want a revolution, but Jesus wants to give them a revelation. So Jesus, once again, ignores their demand for a sign, takes them to school. He takes the word, their word, manna, and he progressively, as he talks about it, intensifies it until finally it is transformed into the bread of God. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Like an expert fisherman, Jesus cast the line, now he's setting the hook, right? They take the bait. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And that last line calls to mind the Samaritan woman by the well in John chapter 4. Only there the topic was water, living water. Jesus offers her this water, and then he says in John 4, 14 and 15, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Both she and the crowd in John 6 think that Jesus is talking about something literal, something physical, but Jesus has something more, something beyond what Moses had to offer in the water and the bread. And he has transformed the manna into the bread of God, and now he's going to take, it, take this whole thing all one giant step further. Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the first of seven I am's in John's gospel. Seven I am's that uh, come from the lips of Jesus. And then Jesus clarifies his statement by saying that if we come to him and we believe in him, we will never be hungry or thirsty. And in doing this, Jesus is tying the living water back in John 4 with the living bread, the bread of life in John 6. They both have something to do with belief in the place that God is supposed to have in our lives. Belief in Jesus is not mere mental assent. It's not, it's not reciting a creed. It's not even believing a creed to be true. It's living the truth of the creed every day of your life. I've said this before, and I promise you I will say it again because it's important. The word that we translate in our scriptures as belief and faith, depending on the context, that word is probably better translated as allegiance, giving our allegiance to Jesus. It's not merely something we believe. It is something we give ourselves to. It is something we lay down our lives for as we surrender everything we have to Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the bread that gives life to the world, and that is a gift. We do not earn God's love. We do not earn God's favor. But belief in Christ Jesus determines the shape of our lives 
the direction we walk on the journey, and the way we walk on the journey. It also aligns our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies to the purposes of God, to the way of Jesus in the world, to his priorities and to his teaching. And all of that brings us eternal, abundant life. After a few verses of back and forth here in John 6, between Jesus and the crowd, they, they, they grumble. This is another indication, by the way, that we're, we're also uh, bringing to mind the Israelites and Moses. They grumble. The people of Israel grumbled. The crowds grumble, and Jesus responds, and he repeats this I am statement again in verse 48 and following. And I want you to notice how Jesus takes the imagery of himself as the bread of life and takes it yet one step further. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, if you're part of that crowd, interacting with Jesus that day, things just took a very dark turn. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's just gross. It's more than gross. On top of all this, Jews were forbidden to drink blood or eat any meat that had blood in it. This is downright offensive to them. It's offensive. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's just getting started. Verse 53. We didn't have this read, but you need to see this in context. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. In other words, he said this when he was in a deeply Jewish context where he had the possibility to offend an awful lot of people. So we're quite far beyond the original passage you heard read earlier today. But it's important to put all of this in context. Eternal life is now not merely a matter of belief or faith, but of eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood. On the one hand, of course, this foreshadows the sacrament of communion that will come later. On the other hand, it is deeply rooted in Jewish tradition too. Jesus was a first century Jewish man, and therefore he would have been steeped in the culture, in the the faith of that time. And in ancient Jewish writings, there was a well-known book called The Wisdom of Sirach, or Sirach for short, and it was written about 200 years before Jesus said these words, he says in John 6. In Sirach 24, wisdom is portrayed as a woman, as was often the case in uh, Judaism, and there she calls out to us, and she says, Come to me, you who desire me, and eat your fill of my fruits, for the memory of me is sweeter than honey, and the possession of me sweeter than the honeycomb. Those who eat of me will hunger for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. 
Whoever obeys me will not be put to shame, and those who work with me will not sin. Jesus borrows from the Lady Wisdom's words in Sirach. She says, if you eat of wisdom, you will want more wisdom, and that's a good thing. It's the way I feel about lasagna. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I said earlier that Jesus talks about thirst and in part because he's drawing on his conversation with the Samaritan woman by the well in chapter 4, but he's also doing it because he's drawing on this passage from Sirach. I am wisdom, Jesus says. In fact, I am better than wisdom. I am better than manna from heaven, and I am more satisfying than wisdom herself. Eat of me, consume me, digest me, and you will never hunger or thirst again. And did you notice the phrase at the end of verse 56 in John 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Do those words, remain in me and I in them, do they sound familiar? In John 15, Jesus describes the relationship between himself and his followers as the vine and the branches. John 15, 5, I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Older translations, of course, use the word abide rather than remain. When we eat of the flesh of Christ and drink his blood, we abide in Jesus and he abides in us. This is what true saving faith in Jesus, the bread of life, really looks like. To believe in Jesus is not just to mentally agree about who he was and what he did, but to consume him, to take him into ourselves, to internalize him, to internalize his teaching, his way of living. He becomes a part of us and we become a part of him. It's a radical call and a radical demand. We know it's radical because in verse 60, many of his disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So now, it is the disciples who are grumbling, not just the crowds. Except John is not referring here to just the 12 disciples. He is actually, there were a larger group around them that were a little closer, like concentric circles. These people were following Jesus to a degree. They believed in him to a point, we might say, but they hadn't really counted the cost. They were holding something back, maybe. They hadn't really given it all. So now they grumble about this hard teaching Jesus seems to be demanding too much from them. This is not just about going to heaven when we die. This is, this is about how we, how we live our lives now. This is, this is not what we signed up for. We simply wanted a Messiah to deliver us. And then in verse 66, there is fallout. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The crowds and even some of the larger group of Jesus' disciples were more focused on what Jesus could do for them than on who they were becoming. They were more focused on what Jesus could do for them than they were on who they were becoming. What are you or I most concerned about? What Jesus can do for us or who we are becoming? 
When we talk about transformation as the journey from curiosity to Christiformity, having Christ formed in us, fleshed out in us, his, his nature, his character, these people who turned back, these people were stuck in the curiosity phase. And when it started to push beyond curiosity, when it started to demand something of them, they turned back. They didn't want to go any further on the journey. Once again, back in Deuteronomy, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. You must listen to him. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, but he takes all of it further and deeper than Moses ever could. And if Jesus is the prophet like Moses, and if Moses told us that when this prophet came, we must listen to him, the question is, are we listening to him? Are we listening to him? Are we abiding him? Or are we settling for something less than God's best? What competes with Jesus in your life or in mine? What competes? What food might we be choosing over the bread of life? Or are we actually hungering for Jesus, thirsting for Jesus, longing for Jesus, for only he can satisfy Whatever we hunger for, Jesus satisfies. Jesus is the answer. Reminds me of that story of the pastor giving the children's moment. All the children are gathered around and the pastor says, Children, what's gray and furry and has a bushy tail? And one of the kids shot up the hand and said, Well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I think the answer is Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is always the answer when we're longing for something. Is life with Jesus demanding? Is it costly? Yes, it can be. But we do not do any of what Jesus asks us to do. We do not do it on our own. We do it in and with the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We do it because... In and through that process, God in Christ is renewing us more and more into His image. We don't do it on our own. And when we are becoming more and more like Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us and through us. That's profound. To get to the place that you can be, say what Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, through me. Furthermore, even if we did have to do all of this on our own, and we don't, but even if we did, it would still be worth it. It would still be worth it. It would be like that pearl of great value that Jesus talks about. Matthew 13, again he says, verse 45, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Life in the kingdom of God with Jesus is the pearl of great value. Is it costly? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Overwhelmingly so. Right at the very end of John 6, after many have turned back from following him, Simon Peter has some words of wisdom for us. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Is it costly to follow Jesus? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. For Jesus has the very words of eternal, abundant life. And we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So whether you have never yet surrendered to Christ, or you simply find yourself in need of a revival, a refresh of what it means to live the abundant life, in tune and in step with Christ in you, the Spirit in you, I'm going to invite you to a time of prayer. We're just going to ask God to give us this bread always. We're going to just spend a moment in silence, and then I'll pray over us all that we would find and see and taste and eat the bread of life that Jesus offers to us. Join with me in silent prayer. God, we are so often far too easily pleased. We may deaden our hunger or quench our thirst with something that is unhealthy and unhelpful. Not realizing what you are offering us, the bread of life. God, I pray for all within the sound of my voice, wherever we are in that journey, wherever we are in our relationship with you, that we would take and eat of the bread that you offer us in Christ Jesus. I pray for those among us who perhaps have never surrendered our lives to Christ. God, that we would say to you, God, I give myself to you. Christ, come and cleanse me from sin. Come and renew me from the inside out. Come and give me this bread of life that I might live and enjoy eternal, abundant life here and now. For those of us, Lord, who have walked with you for a while, but may be in need of a reminder, of an extra helping, God, would you, would you enable us to cry out to you, God, we are tired of trying to do this on our own. We know that you love us. We know that you have more for us. Help us, Lord God, to say no to the things that are less than you and yes to you. In every area of life, Lord, give us the bread of life. Help us once again to taste and see that you are good. And then for those of us, Lord, who might be a little further along, who are in that place, who celebrate these words of Jesus with joy because we've known that, we've tasted it. And though we may not always have it, we may not always realize it, we know that it's there, we know that it's a possibility, and we know how to get back to it. God, would you help us to teach others? Would you help us to be faithful to what you have shown us, to who you are in Jesus Christ, to the bread of life you offer, that we might be nourished so that others could be nourished as well, Lord? 
And would you take this congregation, I pray, God, and would you nourish us to the point of knowing that you dwell within us and that you want more and more to fill us with your presence. Lord, show us where we are hungry. Show us where we are thirsty, that we might come to you and be satisfied. Lord, make of us a people who know you more deeply than ever before. Make of us a people, Lord God, that when people would see us out in the community, they would know that we have been with you, that we know you, and that you know and deeply love us. In Jesus' name, amen.